This Advent and Christmas tide, I want to preach a sermon series called Certain Semi-Sacred Symbols of the Season. For instance, evergreen and this beautiful promise from the prophet Isaiah. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, I, the Lord their God, will answer them. I, the Lord their God, will never forsake them. I will open rivers in the mountains and fountains in the valleys. I will make in the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together so that all may see and know, so that all may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this The Holy One of Israel has created it. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The other day I played a little word association game with my staff. I said to them, I'm going to speak a word and I want you to reply with the first image that slithers into your mind. Don't think, just speak. Christmas, I said. Someone replied, pine. Someone else said, snow. A third person said, a candle in every window. I said, the friendly village. The friendly village is a china pattern from the Johnson brothers that graced every Christmas table of my life. It belonged to my mother for the first 56 years of my life, and since then it's belonged to Kathy and me, and my hope is that my children will argue over it one day when we're gone, although perhaps tastes change. A tiny, snow-covered American village after dark can summon up the ghost of Christmas past for us. These are some of the images that spontaneously, almost precognitively, almost without thought, can summon Christmas to our imaginations. They're very powerful. But what's interesting about my staff's responses is that this is the church staff. Not one of them mentioned anybody or anything from the Bible. Nothing comes from the biblical nativity narratives, right? No angels, no crushes, no mangers, no wise men, no shepherds, no stars, pine trees and candles and snow. So these other things that have entered the Christian iconography have come later in history, long after the biblical canon is closed. Some of them, some of these symbols that make us think of Christmas come from aboriginal religions and foreign symbolic matrices. The Christmas tree came to Christian iconography via a circuitous route from that ancient Anglo-Saxon nature worship that contained sacred groves and trees and streams and wells. The Christmas tree is of secular origin, but it's become so evocative of Christmas for us that I guess you could call it a semi-sacred symbol of the season. Because Christianity is at its cleverest when it moves out of its native land into unfamiliar geographies and symbolic matrices. When the story of Jesus' birth, for instance, left arid, rocky Palestine for the boreal forests of Europe, Christianity simply colonized 
the important symbols of the people who were already living there. Christianity colonized what, uh, colonizes what already exists and simply baptizes it at its own. Christianity is very good at beatifying the profane, including the Christmas tree. For example, Easter, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, is named for Estra, the Anglo-Saxon goddess of spring. A, crisp, a sacred tree, Christianity says, okay, heck yes, no problem. We'll just slather it with candles and baubles and make it a symbol of the Christ child. And so this Advent and Christmas, I'm hoping that every time you see a Christmas tree, you will think of the Christ evergreen. Because evergreen is a symbol of life's irrepressibility. It tells us that life goes on no matter what. The Christ, who has seen the coastal redwoods of California, right? Some of you even know their scientific name. You know that those trees are called Sequoia Sempervirens. And some of you went to prep school and know a little Latin, so you can translate that complex Latin word Sempervirens. It literally means evergreen. Semper, as in always, like the Marine Corps motto, right? Semper Fi, always faithful. Semper, always, and virens green. Literally, evergreen, always alive. And so, sequoia sempervirens are among the tallest and most massive organisms on earth. They can reach 380 feet tall, or a 38-story building, which would stand out on the Chicago skyline. They are also among the oldest organisms in the world. Some of these trees have been alive for 2,500 years. Think about that. When Jesus was born, they were already 500 years old. When Jesus was born, they were already older than most organisms on earth. What haven't they seen? What haven't they survived? On mature trees, the bark is a foot thick, and so they are almost impermeable to fire. In fact, they benefit from fire because fire stamps out the competing species that surround the redwoods, and so they can flourish and spread out. They are a cipher for the irrepressibility of life itself. Some of those redwoods that are growing today were seedlings when the prophet Isaiah wrote the passage I read a moment ago. Isaiah lived 500 years before Jesus. Those trees were already there in California. 500 years before Jesus. You know what the prophet's talking about? With watering these parched regions of the earth? What's happening in Jerusalem in 500 B.C.? Right? The city is a smoldering ruins. The temple is annihilated. There's not one stone atop another. The Jews themselves have been shuffled off in chains to slavery in Babylon where they are picking cotton, digging trenches, sweeping floors, and scrubbing latrines for their vanquishers. Just then, the prophet promises, when the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, I will open rivers in the mountains and, and fountains in the valleys, and I will raise up these evergreen trees. In the wilderness, the mighty cedar, the breathtaking myrtle, the useful acacia, and the life-giving cypress, these towers of green in the dry, drab desert, a symbol of hope and life, the irrepressibility of life. 500 years later, a baby is born in Bethlehem. 
There is no reason he should have survived long enough to matriculate at kindergarten. He should never have reached his fifth birthday. His mother's labor pain started while she was on the road. How did this happen? He must have taken her by surprise, right? Or she would never have risked a hundred-mile hike, six-day hike from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He must have taken her by surprise. He must have been a preemie, or at least a few weeks early, or she would never have done that hike from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And then, when they reached their destination, no vacancy signs everywhere. No more fitting place to lay this newborn infant than a feeding trough. Not very sanity. Animals all around. It's a wonder that an ox didn't step on his head and kill him at birth. And then wicked, malevolent Herod goes on his killing spree. And this wee lad barely escapes to Egypt, where he lives the first two years of his existence as an undocumented immigrant. He came down to a manger and went up to a cross and spent every day between with the almost lifeless, the least, the last, the lost, the lame, the leper, and the loser. At Golgotha, they tried to throttle his eccentric message of hope, but this message of hope is irrepressible. It will not be stifled. Three days later, he comes back to remind us all that in God's good world, death can never have the last word. And so think of that every time you see a Christmas tree this holiday season. Jesus, Semperverens, Christ evergreen. Who's taken at least one obligatory pilgrimage to see the Christmas tree and Rockefeller Center? Do you know that Rockefeller Center has its own head gardener? And that he spends all year scouring the northeastern United States and sometimes Canada looking for the perfect specimen to serve as the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. These trees come from all over the United States, mostly the northeast. This year's tree is from Elkton, Maryland. It's a 79-foot Norway spruce. Twelve years ago, in 2009, when I was living in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, the tree was another 79-foot Norway spruce that came from Easton, Connecticut. Easton, Connecticut is where I cut down my own Christmas tree for the 17 years that I lived in Connecticut. We started this tradition when my daughter was five years old. And so on the day after Thanksgiving, every year, I guess it would take us about an hour to drive from Old Greenwich to Easton. And uh, Easton is in the empty, rural, upstate part of Connecticut, where the landscape is covered with farms and forests and ancient barns and white, clabbered churches. To get there, it's literally over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. In the car on the way there and on the way back, we would listen to the Christmas songs of John Denver and the Muppets. So every year, giant cranes hoist this giant tree into place at Rockefeller Center in mid-November. And then it gladdens the hearts of New Yorkers and visitors for about 60 days until they take it down in mid-January and remove all those thousands of lights and all those thousands of ornaments, but did you ever wonder what happens to the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree when they're done with it? 
they mill it for the lumber on the spot in the plaza. They finish the milling at a, uh, at a mill upstate sometimes, but they start the milling process in Rockefeller Plaza. And people who witness this say that flakes of sawdust mix with the flakes of snow if it happens to be snowing. And they say that the air is redolent with the fragrance of spruce shavings. And that is exactly the same smell you would have noticed if you entered a little woodworking shop in the village of Nazareth 2,000 years ago where Carpenter Joseph and his foster son Jesus would have been planing surfaces and measuring two-by-fours. Same fragrance, the sawdust of the cedars of Lebanon. And do you know what they do with this lumber from the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Plaza? This is so wonderful. They give it to Habitat for Humanity. And so Habitat tries to use the wood from that tree in the state where the tree came from. So this year's tree will make homes in Maryland. In 2009, when I was living in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, that Easton, Connecticut Christmas tree was used to make an eight-unit condominium for Habitat for Humanity in Stamford, Connecticut, less than a mile from my house. I drove by it a hundred times. So the wood from that Christmas tree is used to shelter the kind of folk Jesus spent every day and night of his life with. How would you like to live inside the Rockefeller Christmas tree? And so think of those things, this beautiful season of the year. Every time you see a Christmas tree, life's irrepressibility, Jesus' semperverance, the Christ evergreen, the Christ always alive in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.